Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon, and today is day 146 of Occupy Wall Street. And to our fellow saloners who have either bought a copy of one of my books or who have made a direct donation to the salon, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Hopefully, uh, I've by now emailed all of you directly, and uh, my sloppy filing system didn't let anybody slip through the cracks, so to speak. But uh, I do thank you one and all, and I truly appreciate your support. And speaking of support, right now I'd like to support one of our fellow saloners and someone who has also been a featured speaker here in the salon, my good friend, Alicia Danforth. Uh, And if you recall, Alicia was featured in my podcast number 131, where she gave a talk titled, Building a Model for Sustainable Psychedelic Therapy. Also, Alicia has been mentioned in several of the podcasts featuring Drs. Charles Grobe and Preet Chopra, who conducted the psilocybin study with end-stage cancer patients several years ago, Uh, and that's where Alicia took over the duties of research assistant from my wife. So, Alicia and our extended family go back quite a ways. And now, uh, Alicia is completing her work on a Ph.D. and uh, is looking for volunteers for a study that she's conducting. It's titled, The Adult Autism and MDMA-Ecstasy Study, and you can find out more about it at www.danforthresearch, that's D-A-N-F-O-R-T-H, danforthresearch.com, where, in part, Alicia says, I invite you to participate in a research study for my doctoral dissertation on what experiences with a drug known as MDMA, or ecstasy, are like for adults with autism and Asperger's syndrome. You are not required to have taken ecstasy or any other recreational drug to participate in this survey. This study will compare responses from individuals who have tried ecstasy and individuals who have not tried ecstasy. In order to participate in this study, you must be autistic or have Asperger's syndrome, and for screening purposes, you'll be asked to confirm that you have received an autism or Asperger's syndrome diagnosis from a licensed professional. Uh, You also must be between the ages of 21 and 75, be a non-MDMA ecstasy user, or have used MDMA ecstasy no more than 50 times. For MDMA ecstasy users, last use must be within the past 15 years and have no history of major psychotic disorder. So, uh, if you meet that criteria, or if you know someone who might meet that criteria and would like to participate in some important research, you should go to danforthresearch.com and read more. And uh, I'll put a link to Alicia's website in the program notes for this podcast, which you can get to, of course, via psychedelicsalon.us. So, now, as you already know, if you listen to my previous podcast, I'm going to play the second part of a workshop that Bruce Damer and I led on the 28th of January this year. Also, I want to repoint you to the program notes for last week's podcast, because now you'll also find the video of that part of the program embedded there. And uh, thanks to Daniel Morales and Tom Riddell, the entire program was captured to video with several cameras, and the entire workshop will eventually be online. 
In fact, uh, I'm amazed at seeing that first segment already posted, considering uh, all the editing that a multi-camera shoot requires. I know for a fact that Tom didn't get much sleep for a few days while doing that edit, along with everything else involved in getting a long video posted on YouTube. So uh, thanks ever so much for all of your hard work, Tom, and uh, thank you, Daniel, for your excellent camera work. And right now, we'll be picking up with the next part of the soundtrack from the workshop, which was titled Terrence McKenna Beyond 2012. And uh, we begin with Bruce reading his Ode to Terrence. So in the last six or seven years, uh, for some reason, I've had this obsession with Terrence McKenna. And at one point, uh, it was about six or seven years ago, I sort of sat bolt up and right, upright in bed. Um, and because I had this clear, pressing vision, this pressing presence of Terrence McKenna in my body, or he would say, in my body. Um, and I said to him, Terrence, you left too soon, I'm bringing you back. I don't know why I said it, I said it out loud, you know, cats jumped off the bed, you know, hell broke loose. So, uh, about this time, uh, Lorenzo was starting the Psychedelic Salon, and there had been a lot of source material from Palenque Norte and Burning Man and whatnot, and things were getting going. And it kind of, I started re-listening to McKenna and rediscovering him, because truthfully, I only met him in 1997. I met him through an avatar experience, strangely enough. Uh, too long a story to tell here, and we had an email correspondence, and then we agreed to do an exchange. Uh, he was fascinated by my worlds, which were, as you could see on screen, cyberspace, avatars. Uh, and I was fascinated by his, you know, his fantastical, internal, invisible landscapes. So we did a swap, and he came to my house uh, in December of 98, uh, and this was around the time he was doing overtoning performances with Lost at Last. I don't know if any of you are at these fantastic concerts. Con Terrence was really a performer. He had, he had come and merged as a performer, not just a, a oral, you know, a, a talking artist. Uh, and none of us knew what was coming for this man. So we just sort of merrily, I put him in front on a glass table, a big monitor there, and put him into Avatar Cyberspace. And Finn was there and Ralph uh, Abraham were there. And he was enough uh, enamored by it, of it, uh, enough that we agreed we were going to reconvene in Hawaii in February of 1999 and after Palenque. And I was going to set up, and we were going to do a, a, a virtual world experiment from his house. And he helped set up some other experiments that I participated in um, in between. Um, so... Then we had no idea. I mean, we were at his house, and this was just prior to the seizure that announced uh, his coming dissolution. Uh, and so I, it was very fast. It's like, here it goes again. You know, I meet these wonderful people. I met Jeff Raskin, you know, a year before he got uh, cancer and died. And Jeff Raskin was the founder of the Macintosh Project and a wonderful human being, and then he's gone. So I built his memorial site when he was dying. Actually, he told me to build my memorial site. Thousands of people wrote into it. This is for Jeff Raskin. So when this happened, I was like, oh boy, here, you know, here it is again. I meet this fantastic person that I wanted to really get to know. And we, were, we started these deep conversations late at night and we were just getting going. And I heard the news and it's like, oh, 
you know, one of the conversations we had in Hawaii was Terrence said, you know, we should do a program at Esalen together next year, and I'm going to get in touch with the lady who will arrange it, and that was Nancy Lunny at, at Esalen, and it was going to be in February of 2000. And I told I told Michael Murphy, I was at Esalen five years later, and I said, this is what happened, and Michael Murphy's the founder, co-founder of Esalen, he said, you must do this program. Terrence intended, and I said, well, we'll do it. You know, Terrence intended, he wanted me to get out there with my own stories, my own raps, my own message. Uh, and that was his intention. And so I said, you know, he really, you know, he had this intention, and I, but I wanted to have the conversation. So I, I then dutifully absorbed every last piece of Terrence I could, uh, and the audio was streaming in, I and mean, we had the copious resources. We had cassettes coming in, and, and, you know, it was being put out in the salon, so it was an easy access. But then one day I got the call that the fire, which had started in Quiznos and burnt, you know, a substantial part of a city block in Monterey, had hit the Esalen offices, and there is where Terrence's library was, and it was all gone. And at the time I was working with Dennis Berry on uh, the Leary archives, uh, I became the agent for the Leary archives, I kind of looked her in the eye and said, I feel your pain. You've been carrying 500 boxes of Timothy Leary around all this time, and I will help you find a home for this. And so we worked together, and a home was found at the New York Public Library last year. And then I realized Terrence had a physical archive that's gone. Uh, Tim still does, but Terrence is well known. Tim is not. We sort of rectified that a little bit in the salon by getting the archives, the digitized reel-to-reel tapes, uh, out to the public. But I said, you know what? Terrence McKenna is now a real Humpty Dumpty. He's really shattered. There's nothing left. There's no papers. There's no documents left. There are the books and there are whatever people recorded on cassette. So we started, we said, we're putting Humpty Dumpty back together. We don't know why. We're obsessed. We're doing it. And and I think that I, I've had subsequent messages from Terrence um, about this event, uh, about this year, about doing these things, and driving on the 210 freeway, just coming around where it curves around toward, you know you're coming toward Pasadena. On Thursday, I, was, I had this rush, and I saw him sitting on the polished floor of his upstairs library in Hawaii, just sitting, leaning back, and he turned to me, and he just started laughing and laughing and laughing. I said, hmm, I, I could take that several ways. I could be really ominous, <laughs> or just... You, you did it. You're, we're bringing you back. And so we are bringing you back, Terrence. Uh, we are starting here. This is a very sacred and meaningful place uh, that you were at. Uh, but along with that, the bringing back of a man or a woman doing their biography, digging into their lives, you discover things. And I've been starting, I interviewed a lot of people who had worked with Terrence over many years Dennis, uh, a lot of co- correspondence with him, and because we're doing these programs, and what do we talk about? Uh, there were so many aspects why we loved him, uh, there, but there was other things that you should know, and Dennis is going to cover them in the book. But I think it it is important in these sessions to kind of hint about the sort of the little things that were going on in Terrence's life that were not so. Good in the feet of clay department. We all still love him, but it's very important to know about them. And I said, you know, how on earth can I, how presumptuous of me to 
to do this, I mean, to reveal these things, and it is presumptuous, and therefore I, I won't. This is Dennis's, as Dennis wrote to me in December, he said, it's a heavy weight in his mind to bear. But I said, you know, still I want to do something for Terence. It's sort of the aspect, to give you an aspect of his life. So I wrote an ode, the odious ode to Terence McKenna, uh, which I shall now read to you. And I, it's it's a piece of poetry, and it is partly in his language. And it draws from years of study of the man uh, and years of, of, of his. There will be a lot of inside references that would be hard to get. Uh, but um, it will all come clear in, in Dennis's book. So with that, I hope you permit me, I will read you uh, the Ode to Terence. Uh, and this is roughly rough chronological order of, of his life. So the first section, the first scene is, or chapter is, where did you come from, Terence? You youthful seeker of the weird, from circus freak show Fuzzy Charlie, to Eros on the tightrope, strutting just out of reach of death in the big top. Amazing stories filled your fuzzy head, the best sci-fi the 50s had to offer. This, these invaded your mind with mind machines of alien cities flying overhead on 10-mile diameter Hoover vacuum clean covers. Seeker of brilliant opalescent nature, or opalescent, he would probably say, of your Colorado home, you hunted agates, jade, and associated minerals until one spring you saw, spotted a butterfly, the most astonishing thing you had yet seen. Out in the bay, the psychotropic butterfly flew you to the land of iridescent machines. The butterfly then vectored you to the tropics on globe-girdling adventures, seeking another place never of this world hauling 200 pounds of books to the Seychelles for a peaceable read, who else would remotely even consider doing that? <laughs> this is the young Terence. Running scared with your hash through the markets of Bombay, you skirted the Dominator's cellular immuno-attackers. <laughs> Finally, parked to the left of the Andes, the Amazon green enfolded your fellowship. You sought black gold, but the little elfin bodies of your assigned teacher found you first. Impregnated thus with the adjacent possible, you conjured a cosmology, an anthropology, an eschatology, a numerology, and a technology that saner people wouldn't dare place their life's poker chips on. Two brothers panned an invisible landscape. Two O's cultivated a book on growing the teachers so that they could ensporulate the West. You turned away from science and scientists, instead seeking fellow travelers like John D. Whitehead and others piling up on the pier. In 1982, your ship, the HMS Philosophical Gadfly, <laughs> set sail with a full crew complement for ports unknown, tapes set to record. Next chapter. Why did we love you when you were here, Terence? Stories flowed and droves came to your sort of theater, an amazing concoction not seen since the shaman's tales of the dream time. In a time of the drought, you courageously promoted the pathway back to the plant experience. 
three friends formed a trialogue, and your ideas could be floated in a gentlemanly fishbowl. Your voice soothed us. Your wordage mesmerized us. Your laugh opened us so that when your flashlight shone on your take on the overmind, we believed. Esalen, Omega, and other one-worded places beckoned as the gadfly grew into the guru, no matter your abhorrence of the latter. And those tales you experienced, if only 10% were true, your incredible mind will maybe never again walk or be carried upon this earth. Next chapter. How did you fare, Terence? In the 1980s, dark thunderheads announced their throaty arrival, yet your course stayed ever truer, to your sense anyway. By 1991, business got scary, a marriage dissolved, and your teacher gave you a frightful licking one night. Control in the mind got you all the way to the domed vestibule of the elves. But as the shamans taught, only the submissive heart opens the inner sanctum. All As all that and integrity entered the rearview mirror, it was now the story that was the thing. Ramdas to Terence. Your life is your message. Terence to Ramdas. My life is a mess. My message is my message. <laughs> Bills to pay and a web to be woven, you kept that white-knuckled grasp on the wheel and navigated into ever less charted waters. Nominated as the altered statesman, anointed by the good Dr. Leary, and books flying off the presses, your trajectory arced high. A date in 2012 lay shimmering on screen as Time Wave Zero Code came to life, but it was destined to languish in the bardo of scientific non-falsifiability. Ask me about that later. <laughs> Your fellow trialoguers one day drew a line in the sand as the story started dragging anchor. Ralph to Terrence. That is a paranoid fantasy. Overtoning made you into a performer and you gloriously peaked in late 98. But by then your personal singularity was barreling toward you. You began to experience dreams that were unenglishable. And for you, this is really saying something. By 99, we saw the fatigue of too many trips inscribed into your face. And then announced to us you were headed for one more encounter with the teacher. So close to your concrescence, I was honored to guide you as Avatar's own ghost to take a dip into the language-built virtual worlds of cyberspace, your last taste of tech novelty. Next chapter. Where did you go, Terrence? The teacher arised, announced its return one cruel day in May. The doctor's ironic observation that of the shroom shape of your tumor kicked off your descent into the ultimate experience of novelty. Y2K and your surgeries came and went without a hitch. So the end of the world fell from favor. But you still had your date with a forward escape. 
On April 3rd, your, your final boundary disillusion was at hand and almost too late. Mind disintegrating, your heart forced its way open, gifting you the ultimate wisdom of the teaching plants and, and of this and any world. It is all about love. So, Terence, Teller of Irish Tales, we love you, and we are still here. It's 2012, and in some sense, your year. And yes, we kept breathing. But where did you go? Did you end up so stuck in the muck that the transcendental object could not even pull you out? Did the mushroom wave come for you ten miles wide and sweep you out to sea? Or did the saucer ship pick you up on the pier and ply the waters to the Elfin Greyhaven's luxury condo complex. In a dream with you in Hawaii in 99, I saw you unfold yourself and step into an elf-piloted, plush-seated, bejeweled Faberge egg which carried you up through the azure veil. When told of this vision, you said, Ah, the getaway car. Last chapter. We have brought you back, Terrence. Years later in dreams, you returned to me and to others in many guises. An electrical short, or the elves, or whatever, took your archives from us in the fire of 07. So Lorenzo and I and many others got going and got together in a project to put you back together and make sense of the whole. But your journey was only partly completed. Your business left unfinished and yourself partially realized. Is this even possible? What the heck? Today we bring you back to life in this place where you visited by happenstance in 69, where you later spoke and where Ken and others, with, with Ken and others, you organized the Polenke seminars and where your life was celebrated with the proper Irish wake a dozen years ago in this very room. Then what of you is left, Terence? What if your raps, your recipes, your theories, your life lessons? What is there left that goes beyond 2012? So Terence, that is what this gathering and others to come are all about. So help us out. And with that, we're now going to show you uh, another very, a couple of very special pieces. Thank you. So with that, um, I just wanted to to open up uh, a little bit to, to a kind of a Q&A. You know, Terrence just loved Q&A. He hated to be up on a stage like this with you all out there, just kind of having to be on and, and you know, do, do that kind of thing. He really loved the Q&A. So we're, I think with showing you all that, uh, why don't we just open it up. Uh, you can ask about Terrence, you can ask about these films, you could ask about me. Uh, really, you know, questions. This is where the magic always was with Terrence, and, and this is what we, the tradition we need to carry on. So, more questions in the room? Um, I've often wondered if Terrence was here today, um, what he would say about what's going on in the world. <laughs> so, any insight? You know, I think Terence would resonate with Occupy. 
I, I would like to think so. Actually, when you start asking the question, I was first thinking, I wondered what he'd say about us getting together like this today. You know, he'd probably be uncomfortable with it. Uh, just, you know, I've heard, you know, like all of you have heard a lot of his talks, and I would just have to think that he would be really excited about things going on because it is a shift in consciousness, and I'll, I'll bring that up some this afternoon too, but uh, my dream is that he would be really excited about it. That uh, You know, one of the things that Bruce, uh, he quoted Terrence, you know, his, his last words were, it's all about love and then keep breathing. And I, I may be the only one that thinks this, but... Uh, if you've been to some of his workshops and he talked about DMT and he was talking about how you use it and et cetera, he said the biggest problem is to keep breathing. You have to remind yourself to keep breathing. And my fanciful mind is wondering if, if at the very moment he was expiring, you know, we're, there's speculation we might have a DMT release. I'm just wondering if that wasn't a reflexive action of his, just say, keep breathing, the DMT is here. You know, I'm making that all up, but uh, <laughs> I like it. Uh, we had a question here. In the, okay, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the Evo Grid and just kind of a, a little more information and the status of it right now. Okay. Well, uh, the Evo Grid. You saw a little snippet of it in the in the intro to Who Is Bruce movie. The Evo Grid project was a little bit inspired by Terrence. All I have to say, his ideas about that, of course, the universe is a novelty conserving engine, he would call it. These are not new ideas. It's just that science hasn't really taken a hard look at it. Uh, so I was always into this project called Digital Biota, where we we had a, uh, a conference at the Burgess Shale Fossil. We had a conference there. <laughs> we hiked you know, 3,000 feet uh, paleontologists, computer scientists, up to this fossil quarry, and that was our first day of our meeting. And then we went back down to the Banff Center. And the, the Burgess Shale is where nature, the evidence of nature creating bodies, bodies, um, multicellular but big bodies, um, big things with flaps and multiple eyes on stalks, the, the sort of Cambrian explosion creatures. So I brought all these people there in order to really open them up to having this discussion of how does life start, how do you use computers to figure that out, um, the wonder of this radial diversity of life that's seen at the Burgess Shell, and they're our ancestors. In fact, one of the creatures in the between slabs of, of, of slate, basically, in the Burgess Shale Library, if you would think of it that way, is a very, very small worm that was found, a fossil impression of a worm, and down its back was a very thin cord. That's all of our ancestors. That's our ancestor of all of us. That's the first thing was developing a spinal cord. And they called, they named it Pikaya after the shrill uh, rodents that scream at you from the trail as you walk up to the British Shell. I grew up quite near there. And as kids, we used to hike up in that area all the time. So that was, that was why I was so attracted to bring these people there. The Evil Grid project is fairly audacious. It, it started, I started it, I had the idea in 1981, sort of precursor idea. This is a long-term bake. Uh, in 1985, I started graduate school at University of Southern California and with this idea to create a, a system where evolution could start on its own in computers. But I had a VAX computer, which the old-timers would probably remember, on an ARPANET, on the ARPANET, just one computer and a, color graphics display, and I thought, I'm set. 
I can do this thing. <laughs> Uh, you know, I'm just, you know, just rub my hands. So, so it only take 20 years here in grad school, but, you know, they'll pay. I'll go to happy hour every day, and I'll get free food, and, you know, what I'll become is God, you know, but it would be terrible. And I realized after three years that no one knew what I was talking about. There was no field. The field of artificial life was in the future, and nobody was doing this work. I found a dusty Russian book and a book by a guy named Johnny von Neumann in the 1950s, and I thought, you know what, I'm too soon. <laughs> so in between, I said, I've got to wait, and it might be 25 years. Alvie Ray Smith, the co-founder, technical co-founder of Pixar with, um, with Lauren Carpenter, had the same epiphany in 1979 in a restaurant. They were saying, we want to make a fully a full-length feature animated film. And they gr- grabbed the, you know, the, the required napkin, and they said, how, how many frames can we render at this resolution today at Pixar, you know, in 70s Pixar? And I was like, oh, this is going to take like 30 years to be able to do a two-hour feature film. And this, But this is the dream of these guys. And they did it by 1994 when Toy Story was made. And they knew that this was a lifetime commitment if they wanted to get in this business. And so they cut all these corners, and Toy Story was an hour and five minutes and they built special hardware. But these guys had that vision in the late 70s, and Steve Jobs came along and helped them do it. Uh, so it was the same kind of thing with me. It's like, this is this is going to take 25 years to even start. So I waited 25 years. And in uh, I held four conferences on the topic. I met Richard Dawkins, was a very early inspirer, um, uh, Douglas Adams, Tom Ray, all these people. I toured the world's labs, I gathered information, and then in 2007 I found a PhD program, joined the PhD program because I thought, you know what, I had started on the PhD and I stopped. And a PhD is a good thing, it's a disciplinary thing. People are going to peer review your work. And I, I had 30 advisors to the project from Freeman Dyson on, you know, on down. I mean, Freeman was really very inspiring on this. And I had a team from NASA that that we were doing 10 years of mission simulation for NASA. And so we took the same team and we started building this thing. And what it was is a way to simulate billions and billions of molecules in a digital soup in a realistic way that a chemist would, would do and see what happened. Can you get self-assembly? And at what rates? And it turned out to be a way harder project for 2007. I built the first grid to run the Evo grid in the barn next to the vintage computer and the pigs. I took old servers, wired them together, and I was running it in the summer of 2010, and they were burning up. And our friend John Graham at UC San Diego said, I take, I, I pity you so much. I'm going to build a, a professional array of machines. So he built this fantastic array of machines that saved my bacon you know, and the pigs. Um, but what it showed... And and it was this was talked about a Hollywood finish to a PhD. I mean, this is a PhD project that had been written up in the New York Times. This is a lot of pressure. This is a project that David Brin was watching because, according to David Brin, there's some kind of short story that he wrote in the 70s where some crazy guy started a project like Permutation City's Autoverse project, and they started it in 2008. And this, I was it. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, okay, so there's a lot of pressure. So... We ran seven experiments, and it was three weeks before the the dissertation. We could probably turn all our phones off. Oh, well, this is a good dramatic music. It sounds like Bond. 
So as Bond is swinging through the air saying, we have no experimental results, and there's three, there's three weeks due uh, for the, uh, the PhD. I'm sorry I'm going on long here, but it's such a funny story. Then finally I said to Peter, the chief architect, we've got to, you know, we, we're tweaking the experiment, and these experiments take three months to run. And we did one last, I had an intuition one night, you know, not unlike a psychedelic intuition, because I see these molecules in my head. I mean, I, the whole thing was designed because I would, you know, sit there and I would go into worlds and I would become a molecule. And this is on usually cheap airline coffee. But um, I'm kind of built this way. And so this was all a vision. This is the psychedelic, the inspired project. And uh, finally I said, that's it. We have to do blah de blah de blah We have to degrade the this and that and change that formula and that thing. And we started running the thing, and on April 15th, the staircases started to show up. You see in the film? The little staircases, and those are like gold because those are almost never seen in computer systems. What happens in computer systems is somebody makes a little funny game of life world, and it goes up to some really cool behaviors, like there's crawlers and there's things in these worlds, and they never do anything else after that. They never get any more complex because they've reached the limit of their physics. And what we had done was we based our physics on the absolute craziness of nature. And nature, nature isn't built like algorithms or computers. This is why computers can't simulate nature. Nature is built, uh, basically consider a world of a zillion ping pong balls bouncing off of each other. Some of them stick to each other and some of them are ricocheting around and there's waves of energy moving through the system. And it just so happens that that is the basis of everything. It's called a dissipative system. Like you might think that your cells have, are little factories where like sugar comes in here if you have, drink a Coke and then it goes here and the little winder does this and no, 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 no. The, the sugar molecule from the Coke goes into one end and it slams around for about two seconds in the cell, hitting almost everything else in its path until it happens to slam to the right thing to digest it. That's how you work. It's, it's, absolutely, it's a very psychedelic world. It's a very weird world. That's how nature works. So if you're going to simulate nature, you have to simulate all that, and that takes vast computing power that nobody wants to do. But we had done it. We had built such a system, and we saw the telltale trace of the open-ended complexity. So we would get a whole bunch of biomolecules forming, organic molecules. Then it would, the system would sit around for a while, and then more would form on top of them, and more would form on top. And then the idea is, if you keep going, you get self-assembly. You get lipids. You get... Uh, little cell wall lipids could form and then little cells could form and inside the computer you might see an origin of life. And because we'd simulate the chemistry, you could then take take that simulation and rerun it in molecules. And you would have an origin of life. So now here's the funny thing. So it turns out that when I took out my napkin and I wrote down, okay, you know, we've simulated one nanosecond of time, a thousand atoms. We've done 300,000 of these small volumes. And I was like, this is not even a human lifetime. This is a couple of human lifetimes to do the size of an experiment in the computer to do origin of life work. And, you know, I was like L.V. Ray Smith. I was like, well, uh, I'm already halfway through the lifetime. So I was sitting on a park bench in Montpellier, France. You, you always get good ideas on park benches in cool places, but with another researcher... And this is a week before defending my PhD, and I said, basically, the experiment has failed because computers cannot do origin of life, period. 
They just can't. We proved it. And he said, don't worry about it. You know, in your defense, you know, just, you know, creatively describe that. Just sort of put that in as a bullet point. <laughs> uh, and then it popped into my head. I had this vision of, uh, well, the first thing was, wait a minute, we need to use molecules to simulate themselves. They're good at it. And I had this vision of someone blowing up a party balloon and then taking a, a solution, squirting it in, and you have this tiny little space. And I said, that's it, party balloons. Or the tips of surgical gloves. You can make experiments without glassware that you can discard. You can make large chemical spaces. You can stream the results out. And I can show you pictures of this rig in the afternoon if you're interested. So that, the evil grid now has become the chemo grid project. And there is a uh, company named Springer that does big scientific books, and they've recruited me. I'm, I'm a lead editor on a book on this now. So we're going to have about 20 contributors, and it's called Genesis Engines. And how to build a machine, a Rube Goldberg machine, out of any parts you can come up with, microfluidics, balloons, glassware on little rocker tables. You could build these at home like a Maker Faire kind of thing. An origin of life machine with chemicals doing what chemicals do and then computers watching what comes out of those experiments and then the mind designing the experiments but you have to run billions of, of simulations and the chemo grid will be successful when and, and I'll try to encapsulate this when you see soap bubbles soap bubbles in solution or if you go to the seashore you see a lot of bubbles in foam that's what they believe life could have gotten a purchase on, could have gotten a start with it. All these naturally forming compartments all the time. Well, what happens if you watch soap bubbles carefully, or if you've got cream in your coffee, if you're an old-fashioned person, you use cream in your coffee, and you see these things on the surface, if you get the light just right, you see these things forming and unforming. That's lipids fighting with the water, because the one end of the lipid wants to get away from the water, and the other one's attracted to the water. It's kind of like a relationship. And they're trying to form themselves in the smallest, smallest little blobs. And these blobs are growing because there's more coffee. There's more, there's more uh, cream in the coffee keeps coming up. And this weird thing is happening on the surface of your coffee. You can't believe it looks like a living thing. And so this starts happening. And in, in the Evo grid, we would simulate, or the, the Genesis engine would simulate billions of little cups of coffee. And when you've got the little bubbles dividing, and then dividing again with about the same amount of contents in them. You don't have to know what the contents are. And you see another daughter cell form from another thing with the same contents. An alarm goes off because you have a precursor origin of life that just happened in front of you. And it can. And, and we could cut through nature's, the, the, you know, the millions of years nature took in the oceans of the world. We could cut through that using these techniques and we could get to the point Whereas, like Jack Shostak's lab at Harvard's, like these little bubbles are dividing with the same contents, and this line lasted for sixty divisions, but then it all went away. It's an it's not an eternal bubble. As soon as you get eternal bubbles, you have the beginnings of the origin of life in in front of you. So they'll leave you with that. The question is relating what I'm doing to what Craig Venter was doing. Craig Venter is taking apart the existing biology and putting, removing things and putting other things in. He's hacking. He's biohacking. And then people like myself or Steen Rasmussen in Denmark and others are trying to build it from scratch, from the bottom up. 
Oh, and I wanted to make one more point, uh, which is Terence's idea, his sort of vague notion of novelty, is actually on the verge of emerging, I think, within these systems. So, for example, Stuart Kaufman, I don't know if you guys read around in complexity science, but Stuart Kaufman calls this the fourth law of thermodynamics, where you've got stuff, if you put heat into the system, it all kind of goes down to what's called equilibrium and bounces around for a while, but it then climbs back up to order somehow, and you can like hit it again, and it goes back down, but it climbs back up a little higher. What is going on? There's some kind of a force that is in the system that is saying, you know, even though I'm a disordered bunch of things, I'm going to reorder, despite what you're doing to me. And what we did in the EvoGrid was we modeled, modeled interstellar space. Interstellar space is this really interesting place. It's where life begins, really. It's a big vacuum, very little in it, but there's a lot of free atoms that were blown off by supernovae. A lot of stuff floating through. And reactions happen very, very infrequently. Yet, in interstellar space, now that they look at it, it's full of organic molecules, just crammed. And when a solar system forms, and that disk, that accretion disk forms, and you get Earth-like planets, and their, their atmospheres and everything, their surfaces are made out of the stuff that, was, that took a half a billion years to form in interstellar space. So that is the true nursery. That's the incubator. So when we built the EvoGrid by accident, Dave Deemer at UC Santa Cruz said, you have built a model of interstellar chemistry. It's called cosmochemistry. And so literally we got gold because showing in this simulation that we just we get assemblage, assemblages happening despite the ravages of heat and ionization and everything we were putting in, it would still climb back up. So it's possibly the first computer simulation to show some evidence of a fourth law of thermodynamics. And you know, I'm, I'm going to pursue this in the Genesis Engine project. But in some ways, it's a, it's a hand wave. It's an homage to Terence. Like, Terence, we found, we nailed novelty. And it's just starting to come out of the woodwork. It's, it's a very fringy idea for science, though, to tell you. But it may go back to the origin of the universe, that there's some characteristic of how the universe began that, that is in there. And that's what I'm, another thing that I'm now doing a lot of thinking and visual, visioning about. Well, I, I challenged him privately in the house in Hawaii. We were standing in the kitchen, and he asked me, you know, what do you think about Y2K? I mean, this is 1999. I said, Terrence, nothing will happen. <laughs> nothing. I could see him sort of looking around at this. He had built this house. He had got his store of uh, dried banana chips, you know, and he had, you know, for him it would be like bake, dried bacon and eggs, right? Uh, um, but um, I was like, oh, okay. I said, well, nothing will happen. You may get really humorous glitches like babies will be born in the year 1900 in hospital computers and they will issue these birth certificates, which is exactly what happened. And then I said, well, okay, Terrence, I need to challenge you. You know, in you talk about you know, needing people like the UFO believers needing to come with the same rules of evidence as everyone else. Uh, what about this 2012? You've got to be kidding kind of thing. And we talked about it for a while and he turned to me and said, you know, I hope people don't take this too literally. <laughs> and uh, the last thought we had was, 
hmm, this could become a, like a kind of New Age Y2K if, uh, under certain circumstances, which it is. So we had a question here. Do you want to speak it yourself, or do you want me to re... Uh, my name is also Bruce, and I also design virtual worlds. I did, I did it for the Walt Disney Company. So a couple of my persistent worlds are still Toontown Online and uh, Pirates of the Caribbean Online. Uh, my interest, though, in these virtual worlds is principally how we interact with them and, and the sort of emergent behaviors that, that I see happening with, with um, well, in my case, it's kids who are going into these worlds and using them as virtual playgrounds. But, uh, so, but they sort of are models of systems that are all around us now. I mean, when I was looking at the crowd this morning, everybody was like looking at their screens and reading their email and so forth, which I also think is a component in some way of the virtual world that's all around us. So I, I'm wondering if you could just sort of, both of you actually, because you wrote the book Spirit of the Internet, if you could comment on that sort of, that aspect of it. Very good. Thank you. Are you all paid shills, by the way? <laughs> this is wonderful. You're asking about all my beloved topics, but um, in Avatar Cyberspace, it was a f- what happened in 1994-95. I, I had a vision. I was living in Prague, drinking way too much uh, dark beer. Um, in fact, I would have loved to have known that Terence was a bohemophile because I lived there from 1990 to 94 and set up software labs and went into catacombs and crypts and all kinds of stories. If you want to hear Prague tales, I have a load of them, but. I had this vision. We were involved in MUDs on the side, and MUDs are text-based virtual worlds. But they're powerful because you're reading language and you're constructing the world in your mind. In some ways, MUDs were more powerful than visual worlds even now. But um, this was a new medium about to be born, and it was very exciting for those first five years or so because we were kind of inventing, how do you teach in here? How do you allow people to create art in here? How do you resolve conflict in this space, because these were tabula rasa worlds that the users built. They, uh, there were game worlds rose slightly later where there was more control. It was almost like these worlds were like Burning Man versus Reno, you know, designed and planned versus. So there was this wonderful period of opening of this meeting. It was a pioneering period, and that was the period I was, you know, engaged in. And, you know, we had no idea that it would become so pervasive. In some, in some sense, you know, one of the great books to read on this is Werner Vengi's Rainbow's End, if you're into science fiction. It's the world of the 2020s, like 2026. And in there, Werner actually gives you, uh, puts you in North San Diego County, right next to where Lorenzo and many people live. It's all, they're all set in North San Diego County. You wear this system that's actually embedded in your eyes called the Epiphany System. And you uh, see, wherever you look, you see creatures. And there's the data space, every little speck floating in the atmosphere is a server. And you can see virtual characters. If you're playing a game, you're walking down the street, you've got data. It's a really wild ride. This is The sci-fi writers are always the best at showing us the consequences of this. The character in the story is a Stanford English professor who goes into dementia in 2006. He's cured in like 2030. But he's now illiterate because he's never worn. 
And so what they don't they don't know what to do with this guy. You know, he's one one in a million cured from a deep dementia. And the cure not only cures him, brings him back to consciousness, but it also reverses his aging back to where he's a teenager. So he's a he's a teenager with very, very um, tired eyes <laughs> and a very cranky teenager that's uh, a Stanford professor, an Ameris professor. So what do they do? They put him in junior high. So he's in junior high and he has to, and one kid takes him on and teaches him how to wear and make him literate. Otherwise, he's just not part of the modern world. And it's a wonderful book. So it potentially is as good as any uh, the combination of augmented reality and things like at the Avatar movie where you're in a rich world. Uh, you know, the screens are gone. The, uh, the big screen, the big laptop you sit in front of is gone in that world. It's all built into the body, the body. Sorry. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. So, uh, how was that for an information-packed session with Bruce Damer? And uh, I hope that you can better understand how it is the question-and-answer sessions at these workshops that are where some of the best information comes out. As Bruce mentioned, the main format that Terence was using for his workshops during the last few years of his life was where he would give a brief introduction on whatever topic the workshop brochure had mentioned, and from there, uh, within the first hour or so, the Q&A would lead him off in all kinds of different directions. And that may be one of the reasons that his talks all seem to be slightly different, even when the same topic is uh, alleged to be the focus of the talk. Also, I should mention that Bruce and I will be doing a three-day version of this workshop at Esalen Institute from June 15th through the 17th of this year, uh, which is 2012, in case you're a time traveler hearing this in the future. And if you are thinking about attending that event, you may want to get a reservation in soon because I'm told that it's already about half sold out. And as you know, the workshop whose soundtrack we just heard was also sold out. Uh, and due to the physical restrictions of the spaces in which these workshops are being held, we have no control over getting somebody in once the event sells out. Now, in my next podcast, I'll be playing the remaining audio from the January 28th event, and by then I may know a little bit more about when the Ken Adams uh, film, uh, the new one featuring Terrence McKenna, will become available. But if you know somebody who was at this recent workshop and who purchased a copy of the pre-release version of Ken's movie, you may want to ask them to invite you over to see it. And uh, then if you do, after you've watched it, I'll be happy to Skype in to get together with you afterwards for a short Q&A if you want. And now it's time once again for an update on the Global Occupy movement. As you already know, the screwheads in the establishment have again added more impetus to the movement by evicting the two encampments in the nation's capital. And while I don't want to focus only on the in-your-face moments of the movement, I do think that it's important for us to remain aware of the fact that the establishment is going to do everything within its power to crush the spirit of change that is now sweeping the globe. While it's uh, great to have some victories in saving people's homes from foreclosure and things like that, what we also have to keep in mind is the fact that when the Apower elite evict an Occupy encampment, they are also evicting homeless people from these tent cities. Can you uh, get your head around that? You know, people who are already homeless are being made even more homeless now. 
So, uh, I'm going to begin with a recap of what went down in Washington, D.C. the day of the eviction from McPherson Square. And the voice you'll hear is that of Nate, who streams a live video feed on Ustream.tv that's called Occupy Air. And this is his recap of the day's events. So, saw a couple of you guys. Hi, I'm Nate, for, for those of you who are visiting the stream for the first time. Um, I don't normally sound like this. I don't normally scream so much. Uh, I might tell you something about the intensity of the situations here during the eviction today. That quiet old Nate was screaming at the top of his lungs. So let's go over the day a little bit. I saw a couple of you guys were looking for a recap. For those of you who coming in and out during the day or... You know, I don't blame you, you couldn't watch 13 and a half hours of video today. Um, 5.30 a.m., well, last night, let's start with last night, uh, we, a rumor began spreading that the police were going to enter the park this morning at 5 a.m. Uh, we started preparing for it. Uh, some fortifications were built around the Tent of Dreams, and... So uh, I stayed up till 5, and they hadn't come, so I didn't think they were going to come, and I walked back to Freedom. Um, and then I got a call a half hour later that they were coming in, so I ran down, and I got here just in time for the helicopter overhead, and the police on horseback, and everybody just sort of coming in. I got, I got yeah, I already... It's called the nine essential tremor. I kind of shake it a little bit. It's called your and it's cold, cold too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you gonna be around for a while? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm gonna take off with like, cause I'm having a really, really shitty month for this one birthday. Yeah, happy birthday. Poor Mark, man. Ha everybody, wish him live stream happy birthday. Oh, we has been kicking ass today. It was important work today, dude. Ass today. It was real important work today. We did good. <clears throat> That's Mark, he's great. Uh, he's the other live streamer. Occupied DC on Ustream.tv. Um, so anyway, all the police came in, started putting barricades up around. Uh, wow, I'm really starting to shiver here. Um, ended up, so the Ten of Dreams was taken down. They gave us two stipulations. They said, uh, either you guys take it down or we rip it down. So. We took it down, we kept it, we kept the tarp, and the Guy Fawkes mask that was on General McPherson's face. Uh, so those were going to be donated to the Smithsonian Institute, because uh, they're making an Occupy Wall Street exhibit, or something like that, or they're just collecting our, our history. So that happened, and then uh, me and Mark and Katie, Katie runs the Twitter, for the, it might be for the movement. I, I think it's official. Uh, at OccupyKST is their Twitter. And uh, we three were allowed to be Occupy observers with our media equipment. And we followed the police around as they went into, into the tents uh, at the first part of the park. So that must have been around 10 o'clock because it took so long. Actually, I skipped something. There were about 10 occupiers in the center circle this morning, and 
after speaking with the police, six of them felt like, okay, time to get out. Four of them stayed behind and got arrested. They were let back out. They were here at the GA. They were here for most of today's actions. They were, they were just out of commission for about three hours and they were let back. So after that, we began following the police as they searched tents and removed bedding and personal belongings and bagged them up uh, to be shipped somewhere in the city to be picked up within 60 days. Where I think the park police made their biggest mistake is that they started taking tents down. That was not part of the deal. Uh, they were taking tents down saying that they were biohazards. I don't know what were so biohazardous about them. The tents might have been a little wet and a little muddy, but they weren't a big biohazard. So uh, that's when everybody got mad, real, real mad. Anger that lasted hours, hours. You know, and if they had left all the tents, we were, we, you know, we gave them a little bit of trust. You know, we figured, okay, maybe we can make this easy. We can comply with them. There's a little bit of trust, but you know, and they messed it up. They they lost their chance, and so things got a little bit more hectic after that. Um, two tents were put up. I'm trying to remember the chain of events now, and it's just it's all sort of conglomerated together. Two tents were put up on the what am I facing? So on the east side of the park, across the sidewalk, and that's when we first saw a pepper spray uh, can. Uh, being held in the hand of a police officer. No pepper spray was used today, thankfully. No rubber bullets were shot today, but we did see rubber uh, shotguns, rubber ball, rubber bullet, rifles, whatever the hell they are. So, um, it was that. When the police were trying to move in to one of the parts here on the northeast, uh, we formed a blockade of sorts and tried stopping them from moving in to place more barricades around so that they could siphon off each part of the park. That became a massive... That was, other than the last thing that happened here, that was the, the biggest fight that happened today. Um, people getting shoved to the ground. I saw some people getting hit by nightsticks and whatnot. And one of the police officers uh, was really losing control and another police officer had to pull him back by the arm. Um, I did see that. I think that. I think I did catch that on the stream. So after that we, were, we mainly just had the two spots left. They took the other spot and we were all rallied up in one spot. Uh, throughout the course of all this there were a number of arrests. Brian was the first arrest after the four in the morning. Um, Brian was very angry that we had been lied to and that tents were being taken down. And so he grabbed me by the arm and I walked over with him and he jumped over the barricade and he walked up to, the, to Captain Beck and he said, you're a liar. You're a liar. And they arrested him. Brian has not been seen since. Someone was tased for banging on the barricades not long afterwards here on the west side of the park and arrested Jerry the photographer for journeyamerica.org was arrested. Uh, he's been here since day one. I don't, I'm not sure if he's an occupier, but he's been he's always out here photographing. He takes great pictures. So, you know, I guess 
show his website some support in his absence, journeyamerica.org. Uh, uh, I remember there was... I think I'm forgetting the rest somewhere around there, but I can't. I just can't remember. Um, so let's see. So we were all in that last spot, and uh, I stayed behind because they wanted legal and library thought it would be a good idea for a live stream to stay behind, capture the uh, search for compliance at the library. So I volunteered. And uh, I, I don't know how I feel about that. Uh, a lot of protesters sat down in support of the library. And after the library was found to be in compliance, and I caught that on video, so if any of those books are missing, oh, we're going to see how bad Nate can get. I don't even know how bad Nate can get, but I'm going to friggin' go there. Um, so, <clears throat> uh, while the 10 occupiers were sitting there. Uh, nice to use the soldier. Yeah. You are a soldier. Thank you, Scott. While the 10 occupiers were sitting there, a lot of riot police, I, I, I think every single riot police officer that was here, stormed the last part of the park and forced everybody back in a violent, violent the most violent thing I've ever seen. Uh, you know, just people screaming. People, a few people were arrested, and while they were forcing them back, someone was knocked out by the by the horses uh, on the inside of the park. I don't know if this guy was, you know, picked out of the crowd and was getting dragged. I don't know. I just looked over and there's a protester just lying there. Uh, you know, it's just like holy, did a horse step on his head or something? I, is this guy dead? Is he unconscious? He's definitely unconscious. He ended up getting up a few, uh, few minutes later uh, after they cuffed him to rouse him. Uh, and the library was found to be in compliance. We all came back out here. And someone was, like, an, another person was tased over at the intersection. The library um, was found in compliance, hasn't been taken down? Library has not been taken down there. I was there. I mean, I, I mean, I hope it hasn't been taken down. They told us they would not take it down. They've lied to us today already. So. Okay. Uh, has anything happened in the last ten minutes, or just just the GA? Oh, okay. GA yeah, occurred sort of here in the street. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, that arrest was made there. Apparently, a police officer called this man named Jeremiah over to him and said, "Hey, I want to say something to you." And as he walked up to them, they they forced open the barricade and tackled him and tased him and arrested him. So I don't know how many arrests. I guess there's uh, over 10 police officers seem to have been injured uh, during that last rush as well. I think that's just about it. I might be missing some smaller details. Uh, forgive my frozen brain. <laughs> um, you're watching. I'm, I'm so ha just a lot of people walking up to me today, chatters that I've recognized before uh, from the from the you know the chat box right here at Occupied Air. People coming up to me saying I tweeted your channel and getting it all out. But just all the support. I want to thank you. I want to thank you for viewing. I know a lot of you have been with me all 
day, and I, I was feeding off of that energy. I, I promise you that that there were people watching what I had to show. And I, I hope I conveyed it well enough. Uh, so thank you for watching, um, and I hope you do come back and watch some more. I, I plan on staying here in D.C. After all this, I, I can't leave this occupation anytime soon. I just, this is the hardest day I've ever, ever even imagined having at an occupation. Um, so I would hope that you would follow our Twitter at Occupied underscore Air. Same name as the channel with an underscore in between the two words. Whenever we go live, I send out a tweet. And so it's easier to find me. Join the Ustream crowd if you could. Uh, that'd be great. Uh, just, and that's all I need. That's all the support I need. I see you guys talking in the chat saying, Get Nate some food. He hasn't eaten anything today. Get him some water. Gee, I got handed three packs of cigarettes today. I handed them out. Um... Uh, but I do appreciate that you brought me personally tobacco. Uh, and you know what? I'm going to keep... I feel like I kicked ass today. I'm going to keep kicking ass. I will be streaming tomorrow. I'll be streaming the next day. Look forward to Thursday through Saturday next week for the CPAC convention. Conservative political something committee. I, I've only looked into it a little bit, but it's a three-day event. Expect huge protests, us reeling back, showing that we are still here after this McPherson eviction. Those three days are going to be our time to shine. So I will be streaming that, and I will be a part of that. So please come and watch that Thursday through, through Saturday, I believe, next week. I might have the dates, maybe a little wonky, but I think that's it. Uh, I'm going to warm up right now, maybe get some food in my stomach, and let's see. I guess that's about it. Thank you so much for watching. I'm honored that you, <clears throat> and everybody who's screen capping me today, really, thank you for, because there were a couple points in there when I was behind the police line, and I spent probably just about two hours today behind the police line where I was very scared, <laughs> but I knew you guys were screen capping me and that my footage would be safe. So thank you for, for the assuaging of my fear in that. Thankfully I did not get arrested. Uh, I, was, I was being careful not to be. And sadly, uh, Nate's home for the night after that long day was the other DC encampment and that was also raided the next day. You know, uh, it may seem like a waste of energy to occupy these public spaces like so many people are doing, but without those brave souls who are putting their bodies on the line, there would be little or no way that the great mass of people who only get their news from television would even know that the Occupy movement isn't just in uh, New York or Madrid or Melbourne. It's uh, everywhere. It's in their cities and towns as well. And even in cases like San Diego, where the police state has totally clamped down on all forms of free speech in public places, 
even in that draconian situation, these wonderful and peaceful citizens are holding not only their ground, they're holding ground for all of us. Once our right to peaceably assemble is gone, we're in for a long, dark period of fascist repression. So, if you have a little Occupy encampment in your town, well, why don't you take some food and water down to them whenever you get a chance? Uh, you'll be doing it for all of us. And just one more comment here. Uh, in case you've got some friends who maybe are saying that, well, the protesters are getting what they asked for when the cops attack them with flash grenades, uh, rubber-coated bullets, pepper spray, and uh, beating them with clubs, uh, hey, weren't we led to believe that we live in a civil society? If that's true, then how do you make the case that attacking kids who are simply sitting on a public sidewalk doing nothing harmful to themselves or others... How do you justify attacking them with chemical weapons? You know, uh, from my point of view, it's no different from a parent who beats a two-year-old for wetting their pants. You know, I don't see that as human behavior. That's animal behavior, period. All those campus cops at the University of California had to do was to wait them out. You know, have you ever sat on a concrete sidewalk yourself? And if so, you know that after a couple hours of sitting there, it gets very uncomfortable. Not to mention the fact that uh, a toilet break eventually becomes a necessity, as well as uh, food and water. So all those stupid cops had to do was to sit and wait them out. Instead, they attacked these innocent kids and uh, showed the world what a tightly screwed down police state the U.S. has become. But uh, enough of my rambling. What I'm going to do right now is to play a series of audio clips. The first one is of a young man from San Diego who was speaking at the General Assembly that was held in the middle of K Street in Washington, D.C., the evening after the McPherson Square eviction. And he tells how the San Diego occupiers are dealing with police suppression. Uh, following him is a bit about the Department of Homeland Security, which now includes a national secret police force, in case you missed that announcement. And uh, now we learn that the DHS is monitoring journalists and bloggers in a blatant attempt to keep the press away from the Occupy actions. Next up is uh, part of an interview with journalist Chris Hedges, who you've heard from on several occasions here in these podcasts already. And in this clip, Chris will be uh, talking about some of the ideas that he puts forth in his book, Empire of Illusion. And while this segment will also end with a call to the barricades from Chris Hedges in a different interview, between those two Hedges segments, I'm going to play a three-minute pep talk that Tony Benn gave to uh, some of the occupiers in London the other day. And when I come back after playing those clips, I'll tell our fellow saloners in the U.S. a little something about Tony Benn, who is quite well known in the U.K. and Europe. Combining some of the spokes councils, combining some of the spokes councils. 
Um, and also borrowing some from Austin, Texas. And also borrowing some from Austin, Texas. And how did it actually help? How did it actually help? RGA will not consent upon anything. Will not consent upon anything. Unless it's gone through a working group. Unless it's gone through a working group. If there is a topic that's coming from an individual. If there is a topic that's coming from an individual. We open it for crowdstorming. And we break them into groups. And we break them into groups. And in that group, and in that group, can consent upon, can consent upon an item they would like to discuss in that group. An item they would like to discuss in that group. They also will be consenting upon a spokesperson. Stand and actually inform the GA what item they would like to discuss. And a good thing about that, and a good thing about that, it opens an opportunity, it opens an opportunity for people to get involved, for people to get involved while they're in GA. While they're in GA, based on my experience, because I'm from facilitation over there, based on my experience, because I'm from facilitation over there, our working group had actually increased. Our working group had actually increased, and a lot more people came back. And a lot more people came back. After Spokes Council destroyed RGA, after Spokes Council destroyed RGA, elitist, elitist, elitist accusation, we were down to seven. We were down to seven. Now we have a solid of 40, up to 50 people. Now we have a solid 40, up to 50 people. And sometimes it goes up to 100. And sometimes it goes up to 100. And another thing about in San Diego, and another thing in San Diego, because we're not allowed to sleep in the plaza, because we're not allowed to sleep in the plaza, how we've dealt with that, how we've dealt with that, kind of tacky. It's kind of tacky. Some people donated their vans. Some people donated their vans. And parked their cars at Ace parking lots. And people slept in the cars. And people slept in the cars. Some also, we work with other organizations and unions. We work with other organizations and unions. To use their housing commune housing thing. To use their housing And we also make sure that there are people in present in the plaza. Just in case people would like to ask where the GAs are still being held. Just in case people ask where the GAs are still being held. And some actually do sleep in the sidewalk. And some actually do sleep in the sidewalk. Thank you. Well, the First Amendment protects your right to the freedom of religion, speech, assembly, the press. However, the Department of Homeland Security has decided to modify that freedom of speech and press under its newly enacted Media Monitoring Initiative. Now, this initiative will be conducted under the National Operations Center. And the idea from the brains over at the GHS headquarters will allow the government to keep data on anybody who uses any sort of news or media outlet to share, report, or stay informed. So basically that means that journalists, news anchors, hosts like myself, producers, anybody who's just a news junkie in general who relies on television and the internet to keep up with the times are all going to be under close watch. But see, their targets don't stop there. Any government worker who makes a public statement and anyone who's been involved in any homeland security type of crime will also be under the microscope. And if you're thinking that something like this already exists, technically you would be correct. See, old guidelines allow the government to collect data as long as they're given authorization to do so. But according to Fast Company's website, DHS has been collecting intel, intel since 2010, and they've been distributing that information to international third parties and private sector businesses. 
Why, I wonder. However, this new initiative, which was created back in November, removes the entire need for any authorization, thus making it virtually anybody who's linked to the media fair game. Now, DHS is hoping to combat any outcry over lack of privacy by saying that they're only going to keep tabs of publicly made information while they're retaining data about persons of interest. But personally, I think we all know that's not going to happen. It's unclear as to how much taxpayer money is going to be going towards this initiative or the manpower required to keep tabs on anybody who speaks out. But it does offer up more proof that the government is taking the time to add yet another layer of surveillance to an already huge surveillance apparatus all for the sake of keeping a running tab of who says what. And it's not just the media, it's also social media. Last week we told you about Twitter users who received subpoenas and court orders. Also, the police could get information about what they do online and who they follow and what they say. Just more proof that your freedom of speech really ain't all that free. In fact, it just might land you on a government list. Because if you are making judgments about yourself and the direction of your society based on illusions, uh, you're not operating in a reality-based universe. And the consequences of that are catastrophic. There are seismic changes that are undergoing, that the United States is undergoing, and the culture at large is undergoing. Uh, with the collapse of globalization, the destruction of personal wealth, uh, we in the United States have added to it uh, tremendous debt, which we can never repay, now in terms of commitments and loans and guarantees into the trillions, over $12 trillion. Uh, we are borrowing to sustain an empire uh, that we can no longer afford. Uh, we are borrowing to sustain a lifestyle uh, that we can no longer afford. I mean, real wages in the United States have declined since 1973, and people sustain their lifestyle through credit. And well, that is all, of course, drying up. Uh, banks, although they've been bailed out by the taxpayers, are not uh, lending, giving credit anymore. Uh, and yet, we believe that it's all going to come back. Uh, we believe that we are still uh, the most powerful and the most virtuous nation on the planet. Uh, and uh, that incapacity to grasp the severe new limitations that we are about to face, uh, the uh, destruction of our uh, financial system, has left us uh, clinging to fantasy, to, to magical thinking. Uh, you know, what we're in essence trying to do is borrow our way back to a bubble economy of 2006. And the danger of that is that when you believe, and, and this is just across popular culture, that if you, you just dig deep enough within yourself, if you, uh, you know, find that inner strength and fortitude, if you grasp that you are truly exceptional, you can have everything you want. Well, and you, you point to reality shows and the proliferation yeah. of reality shows as a real illustration of that kind of thinking, that everyone is just one addition away from being yeah. a celebrity. Well, that's the celebrity culture. Um, we're all sort of waiting for our cue to walk on stage. Is that cause or effect? I mean, do these kind of things, the proliferation of, of reality shows, Survivor, where, you know, everyone is evil out right. themselves and there's no cooperation. Is that, do you see this as a reflection of the broader culture or something that, that, you know, that moves the broader culture to another well, I think and, and it, less I, happy place? I think it's both. It, it certainly reflects the ethic of the broader culture. Uh, you know, the, the qualities that are celebrated in a commodity culture are essentially boiled down to the capacity for manipulation. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you lie, if you build, and reality shows a perfect, reality programs are a perfect example of that, if you build false friendships and then betray these people who trust you, 
who believe that you're, they, they have become your friend. Uh, you know, it's about self-aggrandizement, uh, the uh, ability to promote yourself, uh, often at the expense of others, to achieve fame or fleeting fame and money. Uh, that's the, that is the ethic of Wall Street. That is what has trashed the uh, global economy. Uh, the uh, lack of capacity to understand the necessity of the common good, of self-sacrifice, of community. Uh, these are values that from the lowest rungs of popular culture up to the highest levels of our financial industry are uniform and are at the core of celebrity culture itself, which is about the cult of the self about the promotion of me above others. Uh, Neil Gabler, I think, has written some good stuff on this, and he talks about how it's that life movie in the head, that we're, we're all uh, sort of uh, playing out a screenplay mm -hmm. in our head. And uh, the power of technology to create events that are not real, but that appear real, uh, has warped our perception of the world around us. I know it as a war correspondent, having spent 20 years covering conflicts around the globe. I know the reality of war, and yet the perception of war, uh, especially given the capacity of Hollywood to create uh, images and special effects, is totally a total variance with, with what's real, and yet people have, uh, who've never been to war, uh, have a belief that they understand something about it because the pseudo-event replaces reality itself. You also see, I mean, from the port industry to our elite universities, Yale, Harvard, Princeton, even the U of T, as contributing to this empire uh, uh, evolution. In, in what way? Because the educational system has been completely hijacked by people who create systems managers, uh, those who are competent at managing a system but not questioning it. Uh, the withering of the humanities uh, has had a devastating consequence. Now, the humanities are about asking the broad moral questions about the common good, about how a society should be constructed. True intellectual uh, introspection is about challenging assumptions and structures. Uh, but this, especially within the corporatized walls of universities, is deemed quote-unquote political. And there has been a huge witch hunt against uh, those professors uh, that have quote-unquote liberal bias in the same way that mm -hmm. they've gone after them. This is uh, a code, really, for moral autonomy. Uh, what we have done is destroy those voices uh, that... Uh, provide a kind of moral setter for how we should be structuring a society. And the universities, the elite universities where I've taught at Princeton, Columbia, and NYU are particularly guilty because they reward a very narrow kind of intelligence, an, well, an analytical intelligence. Yeah, well, your critique is what they're doing is they're imparting skills rather than wisdom. It's they're, vocational. Yeah, and, but their defense would be, well, you know, we have to prepare... Uh, the next generation's workforce. Well, what are they preparing them for? They're preparing them to move people's money around electronically 12 hours a day for uh, huge firms that engage in speculation uh, that are really parasitic and do nothing for the economy at large. In the 17th century, speculators were hung. Uh, today, they are given billions of dollars of taxpayer money in bailouts. And that is 
that inability to question structures is what's killing us because the only thing we are capable of doing is attempting to sustain a dying edifice, which means throwing truckloads of money at a system that has already failed. Uh, And and that is the, uh, I think, a direct result of uh, a kind of winnowing within our educational process whereby other forms of intelligence, moral intelligence, creative intelligence, are punished or marginalized. And this very narrow, uh, test-taking, rote-learning, drone-like intelligence is celebrated and elevated. Many see Obama as a, a breath of fresh air, someone outside of the mold. You see him as a product of this very, very system, more of the same. He's a brand. He, he functions the same or has the same function as uh, those advertisements that Calvin Klein and Bennington put out a few years ago uh, with HIV-positive models and people of color. I mean, he, he uh, uh, is something new, uh, faintly erotic maybe, uh, but he has uh, done nothing to challenge the structure of the corporate state. Uh, he's... Um, he functions as all brands done. There was a, a brand uh, deflation or collapse, which is very common in advertising, and so we have been given something new. And I think in an image-based society, in a society built around celebrity culture, and, and Obama has many of the qualities of celebrity, uh, we, are, we confuse how we're made to feel with knowledge. We confuse propaganda with ideology. And I think if you look closely at Barack Obama's campaign and his tenure as president, uh, that is precisely what's happened. You're also very critical of the positive thinking, the kind of the feel-good psychology movement of Tony Robbins. Uh, much like wrestling, people would say, you know, what harm is there in this kind of feel-good stuff? The danger of it is that you become responsible for your predicament. Uh, you are to blame. Uh, This has been devastating for especially the working class. Uh, There are no jobs. These former manufacturing centers in places like Youngstown, Ohio, are boarded up. They look like bombed-out wrecks. Uh, The the industry has literally been crated up and shipped off to China or Mexico. And, of course, in many of the plants now, there's large-scale factory closings along the Mexican borders. People or corporations ship these factories to China, so where workers get 10 cents an hour instead of 90 cents an hour. This, in your view, is also delusional, just telling people that all you have to do is kind of think positively. Sure, and all because your if there are no away. jobs, if there, you know, there, are, there have been uh, huge structural changes within the United States that have made it almost impossible for blue-collar workers to sustain themselves and their families. And they have not only lost hope, but they realize that their children, there's no chance that their children will ever be able to replicate the kind of lifestyle that in the 50s, 60s, and into the early 70s was possible for blue-collar workers. Uh, and so Tony Robbins and positive psychologists and people who tell them that they have to, that it's all about attitude, create this delusional idea uh, that to, and, and any kind of uh, analysis of reality uh, that is bleak or dark or negative is dismissed as unhelpful uh, because it's not happy and positive. Uh, and this only propels us back into magical thinking, uh, that we can have everything we want, that it doesn't matter 
uh, what the corporate state does to the structures of the society if we just believe, if we have faith in ourselves, uh, reality can be overcome. Uh, and this, you know, this magical thinking is imparted across the culture, whether it's Tony Robbins, whether it's the Christian right, whether it's Oprah Winfrey, whether it's Hollywood, whether it's television. Uh, it is a common denominator in all of the ideologies that are uh, thrown out. Well, in fact, you see it permeating kind of almost human resource policies in corporate America, the same techniques used in positive psychology. Give me some examples of that. Well, it's very much a part of corporatism, as anyone who has worked in a corporation, as I did at the New York Times, understands. Uh, you take corporate retreats, you uh, tell people that uh, quotas, uh, if you're in advertising, can always be raised. Uh, profits can always be raised. Uh, what's happening outside the doors of your corporation are irrelevant. Uh, it is about the happy kind of conformity, any kind of challenging of uh, the organization, the direction of the organization, and the very authoritarian structure of these organizations uh, becomes uh, a form of dissent which breaks the uh, familial, uh, harmonious collective uh, that is being formed within the corporation. There's a kind of Maoist quality to it in that uh, any kind of challenging of the corporate structure is, again, uh, blamed on the individual who is trying to obstruct the happiness and the prosperity of the corporate whole. Uh, corporations are particularly pernicious, and that these positive psychologists are uh, make quite a good living being brought into these corporate structures to teach that kind. And I have passages in the book about people who've attended these seminars where uh, they are told that it's all about being happy. And of course, uh, none of us are ever as happy as we appear. Uh, there are anxieties and troubles, but the, all of this has to be hidden under kind of a cheerful. Uh, uh, fake uh, 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 veneer. You, you also make the point that these same uh, po positive psychologists are not simply brought into the corporation, but they're brought into the military, and particularly yeah. the military's interrogation technique. Tell me more about that. Well, the uh, psychologists have been used at uh, Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib and other centers uh, to uh, quite scientifically uh, deconstruct human personalities, human psyches. And they monitor the, you know, it's, they used to say that the Gestapo broke bones and the Stasi broke souls. Uh, we've, we're the Stasi. We break souls. It's sensory deprivation. A lot of the work was done in Canada on CIA mm -hmm. contract, as you probably well know. Um, it's about uh, four or five days you can't see, you can't hear, you don't know where you are, nobody speaks to you. Uh, you can very quickly reduce human beings to a kind of fetal state. And uh, that breakdown, we know, is rendered uh, prisoners in Guantanamo insane, and they've not recovered. Eisenhower quoted the, the notion that America was becoming a military-industrial uh, complex. I mean, you raised the same alarm bells uh, in this book, and go as far as say that America is functionally addicted to war. Well, look at our economy. I mean, half of all discretionary spending since World War II has gone into the defense industry, which has largely destroyed domestic industry. Because, if look, if you're a large corporation and you know that if you sign a Pentagon contract, 
all cost overruns will automatically be paid. And whether you're producing you know, M1 Abram tanks or F-16 fighter jets, huge amounts of American money are given to com- countries like Israel or Egypt. And within uh, the $3 billion that's handed Egypt, $1.3 billion, is to be used to buy American weapons. It's a grade. It has nothing to do with capitalism. It's kind of corporate socialism or something. And for those of us who aren't economists, how does this distort the economy? Because the domestic economy can't compete. So, for instance, when New York City wanted to order new subway cars, there were no men. Nobody in the United States made them. Why would you make them? Make tanks. And this is the major public policy concern you have from the illusion that it allows us to think everything's going to get better, that basically this military spending and the deficit that America has racked up is simply unsustainable. Well, it is. I mean, we, we, we survive because we sell our debt. China buys about $2 billion mm-hmm. of debt a day, I think is the figure. Well, one day, our debt, and they're not going to buy our debt. I mean, it's not over the long term. It's like pretending that we're always going to have fossil fuels, that, that gasoline is never going to go to $5 a gallon. I mean, once gasoline goes to $5 a gallon, our food system is going to become, uh, at least for the poor and the working class, uh, food foodstuffs are going to be uh, unaffordable. I mean, because in the United States with agro, and, 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 and this has also happened in Canada, but I mean, the, the agro-businesses have wiped out small farms. Almost everything we produce, uh, it, like uh, fruits and vegetables are out of Southern California, which is experiencing droughts. It has to be shipped all the way across the country. I mean, I live outside New York City. New Jersey used to, was called, it's still called the Garden State, although now mm-hmm. it's unfortunately not many gardens left. Um, but it supplied the food that in upstate New York supplied New York City with food. Um, we, we are not standing up and facing the realities in front of us, and, and it's not coincidental that twinned with our economic crisis is an environmental crisis. The polar ice caps are melting. We've seen up around the Arctic what scientists describe as methane chimneys uh, bubbling up from the permafrost that has melted. Methane is 25 times more potent uh, in terms of greenhouse gases yeah, than carbon dioxide. Some scientists have said that if that is not halted, the human species will literally asphyxiate itself. The parallel vill- villain through all your travels here is corporate America and that the huge power that corporations wield uh, now. I mean, you talk about a culture of deregulation that mm. has evolved in the last little while. Given the current economic crisis and the reaction we're seeing, especially in Europe, I mean, do you have any, uh, in your instance, there's probably hope that we're going to see another generation of trust busters, that a new regime of regulating and reining in the excesses of business in the next little while? No. You don't see that? Certainly not in America? Not in America. Canada's was safe from that because you, you don't have a banking crisis because you didn't allow your commercial and investment banks to become a, mm-hmm. to hedge funds. And um, uh, we live in the United States in, I think, what is probably more properly termed inverted totalitarianism. That's a a term coined by the great political philosopher Sheldon Wolin, taught at Berkeley and Princeton. And inverted totalitarianism is is different from classical totalitarianism. Number one, it's not built around a demagogue or a a charismatic leader. It uh, does not tear down old structures to create new edifices. It purports to honor democracy, the Constitution, electoral politics. 
but it has so corrupted the levers of power uh, that it makes democracy uh, dysfunctional. It, uh, unlike classical totalitarianism, where politics or economics is subordinate to politics, in inverted totalitarianism, economics uh, or politics is subverted to economic interests, which creates a different form of ruthlessness. And you can, there are innumerable examples. You can look at the healthcare debate, but the, probably the most or the best example is the first $700 billion bailout plan. You had constituent calls in the United States running 100 to 1 across the political spectrum against the bailout. Uh, some of the most impassioned speeches decrying the bailout were delivered by right wing Republicans from Texas mm-hmm. on the floor of the House of Representatives. And yet it passed anyway. And why did it pass? Because the corporations wanted it passed. Uh, any any serious debate about health care in the United States should begin with the factual acknowledgement that the for-profit health care industry is the problem, has to be destroyed, and then we can talk about what kind of a system do we want. Do we want a Canadian-type system, a British-type system, for, you know, a French? Uh, but that will never happen because the corporations, and with a corporatized media, we have six or eight corporations that control virtually everything we see, read, hear, and think in the United States, uh, has created a kind of faux debate where arguments that really should have no validity in an open society are given great import and weight. And uh, that's not changed and is not changing. Chris Hedges, very tough stuff. I want to thank you very much for joining me and sharing. Thanks for having me. First of all, I want to thank you for inviting me. I greatly admire what you're doing. I've come to support you and to encourage you. Because... uh, What you're doing here at St. Paul's is what has been done over many centuries in Britain, make a demand for democratic government, that the laws are made by the people we elect, we can remove them, and if we get a new government, they can make laws and you can remove them as well. So the people at the top have to listen to the people over whom they exercise power. That is what democracy is about. And... uh, It's something which uh, we thought we had won because we did in the end, after many centuries, we won the vote first for men and then for women. And in 1948, which is not so long ago, we finally got to one vote, one man, one woman at the same age. And now we live in a world where real power has moved away from the parliaments we elect and is now... The real power is exercised by people we didn't elect, can't remove, and who don't have to listen to us. And that is the problem that we face. And it is a problem that you are dealing with by coming here to St. Paul's. And it's aroused a lot of uh, interest and a lot of admiration all over the world. But I must tell you how progress is made. When you come up with a good idea like the one you have today, the first thing they do is to ignore you. Then if that doesn't deal with you, then they say you're mad. And if that doesn't deal with you, then they arrest you and put you in jail, which is what they did with the suffragettes. And then there's a pause, and then you can't find anyone at the top who doesn't claim to have thought of it in the first place. And that is how progress is made. And it's the way you're doing it. You've drawn attention to the lack of democracy. You're doing it in a way that involves making sacrifices yourself of comfort and food and doing it here. 
you are being fair oh, you were ignored but you can't be ignored anymore you're now being described as mad or dangerous and there are of course threats against you by the corporation of london and you will have to decide what to do about it uh, it's not for me to recommend what you should do because the consequences of what you do will fall upon you yourselves and you will have to use your own democracy to decide how to deal with those who want to get rid of you. But I just hope that you carry on because I think all over the world there's a great deal of interest in what's happening in St. Paul's Cathedral here now. And uh, while you stick at it, while you keep at it, you give people hope and hope is the greatest force for social progress and social change. Go on arguing, stick up for what you believe in, don't be put down by people who weren't elected and have no legitimate right to control you, and all over the world people will say, thank God in London they're taking a stand, and that's why what you're doing is so important. So good luck, carry on, and you'll find that in the end you will succeed because that is how all progress is made. So carry on, good luck, and all the best. Tony Venn. Your assessment of President Obama. <clears throat> A disaster. A poster child for the bankruptcy of the liberal class. Somebody who, like Clinton, is a self-identified liberal, uh, who speaks in the traditional language of liberalism, but has made war against the core values uh, of liberalism, which is a concern for those people outside the narrow power elite. Uh, and uh, the tragedy, if tragedy is the right word, is that Obama, who made this Faustian bargain with corporate interests in order to gain power, uh, has now been crumpled up and thrown away by these interests. They don't need him anymore. He functioned as a brand after the disastrous eight years of George Bush. Uh, and what we are watching is an even more craven attempt on the part of the White House to cater to the forces uh, that uh, are, are literally destroying the United States, uh, have reconfigured, are reconfiguring this country into a form of, of neo-feudalism. And all of the traditional, the pillars of the liberal establishment that once provided some kind of protection, and more importantly, a kind of safety valve, a mechanism by which legitimate grievances and injustices in this country could be addressed, have shut tight. They no longer work. And so we are getting these terrifying proto-fascist movements that are leaping up around the fringes of American society and have as their anger not only a, a rage against government, but a rage against liberals as well. And I would say that rage is not misplaced. Finally, Chris Hedges, you began your speech outside in the snow, outside the gates of the White House by saying hope from now on will look like this. That's right. All we have left are acts of physical resistance. Of course, I'm deeply nonviolent. Um, and if we don't get out, then we're finished. Uh, to trust in the normal mechanisms of power and those normal liberal uh, institutions that once, uh, and democracy now, of course, is an exception to this, but, you know, once gave a voice and a place to working men in this country, uh, is to be uh, very naive and essentially acquiesce to our own, our own bondage. Now, I realize that the great majority of people walking around today probably think that the Occupy movement is just another bunch of liberal, hippie-dope-smoking malcontents, but I know for a fact that that is very far from the truth. As Chris Hedges just said, 
If a whole lot of us don't get more involved in the discussions that are taking place on street corners, in public plazas, and primarily on the net, then, well, you're missing out on a major shift that is uh, taking place in human consciousness right now and on a global scale. Before I played the collection of audio clips uh, we just heard, I said that I would tell our non-UK saloners a little more about Tony Benn, whose stirring words we just heard. Of course, uh, the best place to go for a quick overview is always Wikipedia, so I'll leave that part up to you other than to say that on this coming April 3rd, he will be celebrating his 87th birthday. So he's been around the block a few times, if you understand what I mean. What I'm going to do, however, uh, rather than recite a few biographical details, is to read a few words written by Mr. Ben that was in the Wikipedia article about him. It reads... As a minister, I experienced the power of industrialists and bankers to get their way by use of the crudest form of economic pressure, even blackmail, against a labor government. Compared to this, the pressure brought to bear in industrial disputes is minuscule. This power was revealed even more clearly in 1976 when the IMF secured cuts in our public expenditure. These lessons led me to the conclusions that the UK is only superficially governed by MPs and the voters who elect them. Parliamentary democracy is, in truth, little more than the means of securing a periodical change in the management team, which is then allowed to preside over a system that remains in essence intact. If the British people were ever to ask themselves what power they truly enjoyed under our political system, they would be amazed to discover how little it is and some new Chartist agitation might be born and might quickly gather momentum. And uh, Tony Benn, who was deeply inside the Towers of Power, wrote that in 1988. So it isn't just us working-class agitators who are saying these things about how the system works. People at the very top of the system, uh, at least the extremely honest ones, are also telling us that the Emperor is wearing no clothes. And while some of us may think that this is just a cyclical swing of the pendulum from left to right, and that eventually it will swing back to the left once again, well, to the we'll-just-muddle-along crowd, uh, well, what do you think about the fact that one of the leading drone manufacturers here in the States has proudly stated to its investors that it plans on selling at least 18,000 drones to various and sundry government agencies? and that those drone sales will include some of the so-called switchblade models, which can track a person, land on the person, and then explode. And uh, this information, by the way, is in the public records of a corporation that is looking for more investors in its Orwellian products. To me, uh, this brave new world is even more dystopian than Huxley and Orwell prophesied. Now, please don't get me wrong, I'm in no way saying that all of this is about to happen tomorrow. In fact, if the Occupy movement continues to gain momentum, I don't think that any of these uh, fascist uh, Orwellian schemes of the establishment are going to come to pass. I think that we are all getting close to the point of no return, but pushback has already begun, and I have no doubt about the outcome. After all, uh, 99 to 1, which are the actual numbers of the rest of us versus the super wealthy who are calling the shots right now, well, those odds are so overwhelmingly in our favor that we the people of the world cannot lose. But we'd better get control of the reins of power pretty soon because we've got a whole lot of other problems heading our way in the form of species extinction, climate change, 
world population growth, food and water supplies, and a whole raft of other issues that will be so much easier to deal with if all 100% of us on this little rock floating in space are on the same page, or should I say on the same planet. So uh, I hope that I haven't bummed you out any, because the truth is that we're a whole lot better off than we were last year this time. A lot has happened since then, and for sure there is now an awakening of consciousness, of spirit, human spirit, all over this beautiful little planet. Hey, uh, after all, it is our home planet, so why don't we get to talking with one another, solve our differences, and uh, get to work on making this planet a place to brag about as we begin to come into contact with our neighbors here in this wonderful little galaxy. Now I'm going to close with the music from a very nice little video titled, Are You One of the 99%? People of the World Unite. And it's by Mr. Biscuit and featuring Megan Henwood. Uh, And the video has some really great images in it, which uh, I'll embed in the program notes for this podcast that, uh, of course, you can find via psychedelicsalon.us or at the Occupy Update blog at occupysalon.us. And... For now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. Generation. 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 Generation.